The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the portion of scripture we read at the beginning in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. And reading now from the second half of the last verse of the first chapter and the first two verses of the second chapter. I begin to read halfway through verse 28 of chapter 1. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. And he said unto me, Son of men, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. Now here, as I reminded you at the beginning of the reading, we have an account of the call and the commissioning of the prophet Ezekiel. It's an amazing description, as you must have noticed in the reading this morning and whenever you've read this great chapter for yourselves. Now, I'm concerned about it in one respect only. Not uh, so much in terms of Ezekiel himself and what he was called and commissioned to do, important though that is. But I'm concerned rather with uh, what happened to him and uh, his reaction to it. In a sense, this experience of Ezekiel was uh, unique and yet in another it wasn't. It's one of a series of a similar experiences which one reads of in the scripture. Moses, you remember, had a similar experience. You'll find it described in Exodus 33. Daniel had a similar experience. And then the apostle John describes how he had a similar experience in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. There are individual variations in these experiences, and yet what strikes one, of course, is the element which is common to them all. And it is to that particular element that I'm anxious to call attention this morning. What I'm interested in, therefore, in other words, and anxious to consider with you is what we may well call the real end of religion, the ultimate object of it all. We mustn't allow the imagery and the details to mislead us. This book of Ezekiel in particular is full of such imagery. The truth is presented through him in that particular form, pictures, images. But we mustn't lose ourselves in the details, but rather grasp the great central object of all that we are given in such detail in the picture. It is all a great manifestation of God to the prophet, as are the other instances to which I've already referred. Now, the thing, therefore, that is of interest to us is what God felt was necessary in the case of Ezekiel before he could truly function as his prophet and as his mouthpiece. You see, he wasn't merely given a message. He was given a message. That follows in chapter 2 and right through. But before that happens, this other thing had to happen. And nothing is more important than that we should bear the relationship of those two things all together, clearly always 
in our minds. You get these various uh, visions given to people in the Old Testament. You get the so-called theophanies. The Lord Jesus Christ appearing in a human form to different people. You remember it in the case of Abram, in the case of Samson's mother and so on. Now, all these have the same grand objective. And what's important for us is to concentrate, I say, on the purpose of these. It isn't that we should seek visions. God forbid that we should do that. It isn't that we should be anxious to see things such as were seen by Ezekiel. That isn't the thing. The important thing is that we should realize the essential experience which was thus granted to him. Now, in this particular description of it, we have it all, of course, in a very intense form. The other examples I've quoted, likewise, put it in a very intense form. We must not uh, expect nor anticipate that. There are variations in the degree of spiritual experiences. But it isn't the degree that matters. It isn't the extent that matters. It is the thing itself, the quality of the thing itself. This is true, of course, of every aspect of the Christian life. But the Bible gives us certain notable and outstanding instances and illustrations in order to direct our attention to the principle itself, to the thing itself. And it is in that way that we are going to examine this Remarkable experience that was given to the prophet Ezekiel. Now, why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing it for this reason. It seems to me that one of the greatest dangers confronting us all is to take for granted the most important and the most vital thing in connection with our Christian faith. And to take it for granted to such an extent as sometimes perhaps not even to know it at all. Our greatest danger always is to miss the wood because of the trees. And we tend to become interested in various details of the Christian life to such an extent that the vital thing that makes it Christianity sometimes is entirely forgotten and ignored. How easy it is to be living on the outskirts, to be dwelling in the vestibules, and to miss the glory and the grace and the splendor. But after all, that is the object and the purpose of religion, of the Christian faith. The Apostle Peter reminds us that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and died in order to bring us to God. And it doesn't matter, my friends, what we may have unless we know that we have been brought to God. Ezekiel had a living experience of the living God. And that is, I say, the end and the object, the center of the Christian faith. The highest beatitude of all, I take it, is this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, that's the end. That's the object. That is the ultimate. And uh, if we fail to keep our eye constantly, perpetually upon this, all else in the end 
will avail us little. Now, there are various fossils that uh, tend to militate against this, as we all must realize in our own personal experiences. There are certain oppositions and enemies outside us. They are quite obvious in the modern world, aren't they? That's why we are hearing so much about communism and things like that. But you know, my dear friends, the real enemies of our souls are not the ones that are outside us. They're the ones that are inside us. It's not difficult to detect these external enemies. They're so obvious. And a man can be an expert on them and recognize them and resist them. And yet still know nothing at all about that which is described here by the prophet Ezekiel. You see, there is the danger of our being content with a kind of traditionalism. The danger of our being content with being religious. We can be interested in, in the church and in church life and in church activities. And imagine that we are truly Christian. But you know, you can be a, a very good churchman and still know nothing about God. It's an appalling possibility to substitute our own activities, our own business. The fact that we were brought up to do these things and have always done them and rather like them and like the people who do such things. There's all the difference in the world between meeting together in a building and meeting together with God. And alas, it's terribly possible to meet together in a building such as this or any similar building and not to meet with God. But my dear friends, what's the value of that? How will that help you when you're on your deathbed? How will that help you at the bar of judgment? That's not the end and object. These things are incidental, but they're a very real danger. And then, of course, there is the uh, danger of what uh, we have often described as a kind of believism, which means that people fall into the delusion of thinking that as long as they repeat the right phrases and shibboleths, that they're Christians. But my whole object this morning is to remind you again that you can say everything that is right and yet know nothing at all about this which happened to Ezekiel. He died that he might bring us to God. You can be absolutely orthodox in your statements and still be spiritually dead. There's nothing to prevent a man of intelligence in, in doing that, and many have done it. And those who are less intelligent, they do it. They repeat formulae, and they think that that makes them Christian, but it doesn't. We've got to test our profession and what we think we are by some deeper and sounder tests. Well, then I would put next to that a kind of intellectualism. I differentiate between these two because... Uh, Believism is not always intellectual, but there are those who go beyond that and are very interested in theology and in doctrine and definitions of faith and they read learnedly and talk learnedly and they're very satisfied and happy with that. But again, you can do all that and still know nothing about this experience. The highest intellectual knowledge is no substitute for this knowledge of God. What a terrible danger it is. You can be a theologian and dead spiritually at the same time. And even an orthodox theologian. The Apostle Paul, of course, says this also perfectly in 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all knowledge and all this understanding and so forth. 
But if you lack this love, it profits you nothing. Speak with the tongues of men and of angels, no good. There's nothing in it. Well, now these are some of the horrible and the terrible dangers that afflict us. And that is why it seems to me that from time to time we should take occasion to examine the very center, the whole foundation, to discover where we are. Then you can add the danger of a kind of moralism, doing good, that passing as Christianity. That's very popular at the present time. They say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you do good, as long as you show the spirit of Christ and self-sacrifice and so on. That's it. And then, especially at the moment, this great concern about social concern. We are told that this has been the great lack in evangelicalism. It isn't true, in fact, to start with. But then we are told that this must be the great thing now, the social concern. Well, you can have a very great social concern, but it's of no value. You can give all your goods to feed the poor. You can go beyond it and give your body to be burned. But if you haven't love this love of God in your heart and love to God, it's of no value. It's useless. Well, here then are some of the things which we see can so easily absorb us and we can go on year by year. God knows a man can stand in a pulpit and preach and still his own soul may be ignorant of these things. We all must needs examine ourselves. We are victims of habits and customs, traditions, practices, and on and on we go. The wheel turns year after year, but I ask in the name of God. What's it leading to? Where's it bringing us? Are we nearer to God than we were this time last year? Do we know him better than we did ten years ago? That's the question. It's the only question that really matters. Well, very well. The whole emphasis here is upon what I would call the experimental, or if you prefer it, the experiential. Or indeed, I venture to use the term, the mystical element in the Christian faith and in the life and the condition of the soul. Now, I argue that this is the great thing taught everywhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New. You go through your Old Testament, pick out your great heroes of the faith, and invariably you will find that their chiefest characteristic was this. They were men that knew God. Abram was a friend of God. Enoch walked with God. Isaiah had that knowledge of God. So had this man. So they all had. And it's exactly the same in the New Testament. The essential experience is exactly the same in the Old Testament and in the New. There is perhaps a greater clarity. It's more specific in the New because the Lord had come and had done his work. It's the shadow in the old, the substance in the new, but it's the same thing. As I say, the intensity varies, but the essential experience is always one. And it is to this that I'm calling attention. I need scarcely say, I'm, I'm sure, that I'm not here to say that nothing matters but experience. I spend most of my time in refuting that. But what I am here to say is this that the element of experience is absolutely essential. The tragedy is that we always will put these things up as opposites. We react so violently. Some people say that nothing matters but experience. They're not interested in definitions. But as long as you felt something or have had a great change in your life, that's all right. Well, of course, that is all wrong according to the scriptures. But then it's tragic to go and react against that and say, 
Oh, nothing matters but intellectual apprehension and formulation. That's equally wrong. That's essential. But if it isn't accompanied by experience, as I've been indicating, there is no value in it whatsoever. The glory of the biblical position is that it always has the two running parallel. And therefore, as we come to analyze this experience, we shall see that the two elements always go together. The false experience will never stand up to the tests that emerge here. And so there is no need of our being afraid of cultivating a false experience. My proposition, therefore, is this. That the ultimate end and object of the Christian faith is to bring us into a living experience of God. Now, what are the characteristics of this experience? Well, they're here laid open before us. I simply want to hold them before you briefly this morning. Examine yourself in the light of them. Go on doing so. What is the first thing? What is uh, the first essential, in other words, before any man has a right to call himself a Christian? I wouldn't hesitate to answer that it's this. It is a sense of God. An awareness of God. This, I say, is the whole object of salvation. Man was made in the image of God, in correspondence with God, and was in communion with God. Sin was that which cut off the communion and caused the separation, so that man became a stranger from God and no longer enjoyed fellowship with God. What's the object of salvation? Well, to restore them, to reconcile men unto God. And that, I say, means something in the realm of experience. So that it restores to men this living sense of God, this awareness of God. That's what happened to Ezekiel. Here I say it's in a very intense form. He saw these appearances, these beasts, the wheels, and these extraordinary colors. That's all right. It's given us in a pictorial form in order that it may direct our attention to it. These things are not essentials. But the thing itself, of course, is the thing that matters. Of course, the imagery is used because there is a sense in which such an experience cannot be described. It baffles description. And yet, it is real. It is always known. Any man who's ever had a sense of God and an awareness of God he knows it, and he'll never forget it. He knows exactly what it means. I would borrow once more a phrase from Wordsworth. He didn't mean what I'm talking about, but I think his phrase is helpful if I use it, but as an illustration. He says, for I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thought. And that, I say, is the central thing in this Christian life of ours. The presence. The sense of God. What, what are its features? What are its characteristics? Well, here it is, isn't it? The glory of God. This is a great account of a manifestation of the glory of God. You notice the terms he uses. This, he says was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. 
No man can see God and live. Ezekiel didn't see God. He couldn't have stood the test of the sight more than anybody else. But what he was given was an appearance of the likeness of the glory. She didn't see the glory itself. That's ineffable. But uh, there is a likeness of the glory and he was given to see an appearance of that likeness. You see uh, how distant it is? And you see how the Old Testament and the New go together? We see as in a glass darkly, says the great apostle. I see as uh, in a riddle in an enigma. That's all because we can't stand anymore while we're in this life and in this world. He only saw the appearance of the likeness, but oh, what an appearance it was. And it was, I say, of the glory of God. That is, I suppose, the most essential attribute of God. His glory. His glory fills the heavens. The brightness. You see, we have imagery here trying to express it. A fire and of lightning. Oh, but it's all utterly inadequate. Beloved people, have we any sense of the glory of God? Do you ever think about this? Do you ever meditate upon it? Do you ever pause in the presence? Have you ever felt, however dimly and vaguely, something of the sense of the glory of the everlasting God? That's what was given to Ezekiel, as it was given to all the others. The Apostle Paul says, you see, this is what makes Christians Christians. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts. What for? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. I know, but that's what we've got. That's what we've had. That's what makes us Christians, says Paul. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You see, we're not just looking negatively at these things. Oh, I know communism's anti-God, but you, I can be an anti-communist, but still the question is, do I know anything of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? It's so easy to be negative, but this, this is positive, this is vital, this is living, the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God. The government is in his hands upon his shoulders. You read here about this fire, and I saw the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it from the appearance of his lines even upward and from the appearance of his lines even downward. I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about. What does this indicate? Well, not only government, but justice and judgment. The everlasting God in all his glory and majesty and might and dominion He's a righteous God. He's a just God. He's a holy God. He's the judge of all the earth. Ezekiel knew that he was in the presence of this God. And that is Christianity. That's what it means. But thank God he saw the colors also of the rainbow and this always means mercy. Lest he be crushed utterly there was this manifestation of mercy. Let me try and sum it all up for you. The first point I'm making is this. That I would say that the first and the chiefest characteristic of the Christian 
The test, I mean, which I apply to him when he's told me all that he believes and brings out so glibly all the phrases. I say, my friend, are you God-fearing? Do you know anything about reverence and godly fear? Have you an awareness of God? Do you know anything about the glory of the almighty God? That's it. There's the first thing, but let me go on. The second thing is, of course, the sense of God, this great God, dealing personally with us. Here was Ezekiel, you see, and God suddenly began to speak to him. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, oh, we, there's no trouble about remembering the details. When any man has a living experience of God, he never forgets it. He can tell you exactly when it happened. The fourth month in the fifth day, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, but the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. God began to deal with him personally. And uh, this is again one of the essential features of a, a truly Christian position. You know, a man can't be a Christian. It's impossible without having a sense that God has interfered in his life. You see, you get that even at the beginning in your conviction, don't you? And at that stage, you may very well resent the interference. You may say, I want to live my own life. I want to go my own way. Why should God interfere with me? Why should he come? But you see, he does. He puts his hand upon you. He calls you. And you are disturbed. You are conscious that God is dealing with you and with you personally. And he's speaking to you. You're being addressed by God. And you know that you are. He's come into your life. He's doing things too. What do we know about the hand of God upon us? But extent that God has taken hold on us and has done something to us, that the living God whom we'd always spoken about perhaps, but who had been some vague abstraction to us, our philosophic X, some absolute away in the heavens, that this God in a living, personal manner has been dealing with us individually and personally. It's so easy to talk about Christianity. It's so easy to talk about Christendom, to be excited about Western civilization and a great philosophical position. But my dear friend, if all that hasn't become personal and you're aware that you are face to face with this living God, I say it's not Christianity. It's the whole object of Christianity to reconcile us to God and to bring us into this relationship. And here is this man there's one thing he was more certain of than anything else, was that at this point this living God began to deal with him personally. He was called to his office. We are called by God unto salvation. But let us go on with our examination. Each one of these things, of course, could be easily expended. I'm merely giving you some headings whereby we may test ourselves. The inevitable effect of this always is the third thing, which is humbling. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. And I heard a voice of one that spake. I fell upon my face. People sometimes like to talk about the lost chord of Christianity or of evangelicalism. The missing aspect of our faith. 
If I were to be asked my opinion on that question, this would be my answer. The sense of humbling. The falling upon our faces. The tragedy today is, is it not that we are all so healthy? We are all so glib. We are all so assured. We are all so busy. I'm not advocating clearly a dull solemnity or some kind of artificial humility of the Uriah Heap type. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. The thing that I'm discussing with you, it doesn't need any demonstration. It needs no argument. My dear friend, any man who has some glimpse of the glory of God, inevitable, is humble. I fell upon my face. Why? Well, an utter sense of unworthiness. You can't behold purity without feeling unclean. You can't look at light without being aware of the darkness. You can't look at greatness and majesty and might without feeling yourself shrinking to nothing. Your smallness, your weakness, you are nothingness. There is no more characteristic mark of the true Christian than just this very thing. Humbleness, the sense of being humbled. Now, I don't even mean humility at this point. I mean something more important than humility. Humility is the outcome of this which I'm trying to describe as humbleness, humbleness being humbled, humbling. What it means is this, you see, that a man has some conception not only of his utter sinfulness, but of his utter insignificance, his utter smallness. Now, this is very difficult in this age in which you and I live, you see. Man is boasting of his achievements. Man has never been so self-confident. Man, and the most difficult thing in the world is for a man to feel that he is nothing and nobody and knows nothing and is weak and is ugly and vile and foul. And there's only one thing that will ever make a man feel that, and that is the sight of God, a glimpse of God. Don't materialize this over much. Don't be over anxious, I say, about the imagery again. You may see nothing, you may have no vision, but if you have this sense of God, if you have an awareness of his glory and his ineffability and his majesty and his righteousness and his holiness, oh, you'll just feel that you want to run away. You'll say with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. John felt the same. All these men have felt the same. The greatest saints the world has ever known have always been the men who've had the greatest sense of their own unworthiness, their own sinfulness, their own utter weakness and inability and nothingness. My friends, do we know anything about this? Have you ever felt utterly hopeless about yourself? Lost, forlorn, ugly, foul. Have you ever known what it is to cry out in some shape or form? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? That's the invariable and inevitable consequence of this experience, this awareness, this sense of the presence of God. And then the last thing which I would emphasize is this. These are just principles by which we test ourselves. 
The next thing is, and it follows, of course, with this curious inevitability, is the sense that we have received everything from God. He said unto me, Son of men, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And he couldn't, of course. He was utterly weak. He'd fallen upon his face to the ground. He couldn't lift himself. Who could stand in the presence of such a being? The thing is impossible, but the command comes, Stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. But this is what happened. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet. That I heard him that spake unto me. Oh, here's a test of our Christianity, of our whole Christian position. The Christian is a man who is conscious of having received everything from God. Stand upon thy feet, I can't stand upon my feet. The Spirit comes with the word and puts me on my feet. I am what I am, by the grace of God. I am not what I am because I have certain abilities, because I've had certain training, because I have certain faculties and propensities, not at all. What have ye, says the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, what hast thou that thou didst not receive? There were people boasting about their knowledge and understanding in Corinth and what they were doing. Wait a moment, says Paul, what hast thou that thou did not receive? I am what I am. By the grace of God, I would still be that militant, persecuting Pharisee, that blaspheming, ignorant fool, were it not that he took hold on me and made me anew and set me upon my feet. We are his workmanship. And take it from me, my friend, that if you think you've made yourself a Christian, you're not a Christian at all. There's nothing more obvious about the Christian than the fact that he realizes that it is entirely due to the action of God, his workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's it mean? It means this. The Christian is a man who is aware of the fact that he's received new life. He was lying on the floor in his helplessness, in his weakness, in his shame, in his sinfulness and in his vileness. And a word came to him that set him upon his feet. What is it? Oh, it's the gift of life. It's regeneration. He's aware that there is a new principle in him. He can't help this. He doesn't understand it fully, but he knows that it came. And it came with the word, the spirit upon the word, entered into him, made him anew, set him on his feet, gave him life, power, understanding, ability, and vigor. He's ready to be God's servant. Do you know that the life of God is in your soul? Have you known this infusion, this transfusion, if you like, of life and power and ability coming to you? Do we know what it is to be amazed at ourselves? That we are able to stand in the presence of God. Oh, you remember again how the Apostle Paul puts it. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says we rejoice in this 
grace wherein we stand. It's a tremendous thing, this, that a feeble, sinful man can stand in the presence of God. It's God alone who can enable him to do it. But he does enable him to do it. And he does it by giving him life and power and vigor and strength. What's a Christian? Well, a Christian is a man who knows that the God who made everything out of nothing at the beginning has taken hold of him and having smashed him, he has made him anew, fashioned him after the image of his only son, has set him upon his feet, can address him and he can listen. That's my last point. The Christian is a man who is here listening to God. He set me upon my feet that I heard him that spake unto me. He's a man who is mastered by God, controlled by God, led by God, directed by God, and who realizes that he can only live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Well, there it is, my friends. That's why the Son of God came into this world. That's why he died upon the cross. To bring us to that. Not merely to save us from hell. Not merely that our sins should be forgiven. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This is life eternal. That they might know thee. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Do we know God? Have we been in the presence of God and felt it? To know and to feel that he was there. Something of the glory and the greatness and the majesty, yes, and the mercy and the power and the coming of life, the renewal, the newness. What value is there in anything if we haven't got that? That is the end, the ultimate object of all our faith and every Christian activity. This is the center. Everything else comes out from this, but without this, all else can be a tinkling symbol, refuse, useless, worthless. To know God. Have you any hunger and thirst after this God? Does your heart cry out after him, the living God? Do you know him? Let us ever keep this in the center. Whatever we may do, let us ever realize that this is the fount, the source, the origin, the beginning, the end. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not the appearance of the likeness then, but more. They shall see God. Amen. The closing hymn is hymn number 260, 260. Come, dearest Lord, descend and dwell by faith and love in every breast. Then shall we know and taste and feel the joys that cannot be expressed. 260.
to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall be safely in glory. Amen.